I'm Pastor Ben, and it's my privilege this morning to share God's Word with you as we start this new sermon series and really this whole church conversation connected with our life groups and our sermons called Better Together. Now, to do this this morning, I have to ask you a question. Is there anything in your life from your past that you regret? Do you have any regrets whatsoever? Are there some things in your past that you wish you wouldn't have done? Or are there some things in your past that you wish you would have done? Now, I know some of you pretty well, and I've already heard you tell me this, that you actually live your life with no regrets. Because how you see it is, if you would go back and change something, well, then your life at present would be completely different, and you love how it turned out, right? You love your spouse, and you love your family, and if you tinkered with the past, it might not turn out that way. And so you say, I, I live with no regrets. But if I really pinned you down, if I really had a heart-to-heart, -heart, and I promise not to tell anyone, I bet you probably have at least one thing, right? One thing that you would go back and change. Maybe that time that you didn't ask that girl out. Or maybe the time you did ask that girl out. Maybe that time that you didn't try out, or that time that you dropped out. That time that you didn't invest, or that time you invested a little bit too long. That time you had that drink and you never should have. Or that tattoo you got in college that you're now trying to get rid of. We all have these things in our past that we wish we wouldn't have done. I have these things in my past. I have many things in my past that if I really could, I, I would go back and change them. One of these things happened to me in, in high school. You see, I played on a very talented high school basketball team, and we had played together since the fourth grade. We were in organized basketball from early, early, early ages, and we were very successful. We always played against higher level competition, against older kids, and despite that, we piled up trophies along the way. So as you can imagine, by the time we got to our high school years, into that varsity level, there was a little bit of buzz about our class, because just like Sterling and just like Rock Falls, just like Dixon, or probably wherever you're from, when, when those younger kids win over and over and over and over again, you're excited to see what they'll do on the, on the big stage, right? How will they represent the town at the varsity level? And so we finally made it. My entire class, we were up there, we were on varsity, we had the athleticism, we had the skill set, we had the height, we had the coach, we even had brand new uniforms. If we've learned anything from feel-good sports movies, it's the uniforms that changes everything, right? We were ready. We even had two star players that had been playing on varsity since their freshman year and were both about to become 1,000-point scorers. Everything that people saw in, in my class and on this team meant that we should walk home with the ultimate prize, but we didn't. And the reason that we didn't had nothing to do with our skill or our uniforms or our coach. It was because we were not unified. And it started with our two star players. You see, we did not get along. We spent more time competing with each other than we did competing with the other team. It was always a fight for who could have the most points or the most accolades or get the most attention from the parents of the sisters that we were both dating. Yes, it was very much like a movie if I were to write a movie about it. But this was the problem. We were disunified. And because of this, 
we became the team that should have been and could have been, but never was. This is our legacy. A legacy where our town began to try to find blame. After all, whose fault was it? If there was so much talent on a team, how did they not walk home with the large trophy, right? The ultimate prize. And so a lot of people pointed at the coach. Now, you know already that this wasn't his fault. In fact, he spent a lot of time with us in a room, talking to us and trying to get us on the same page, but it just never happened because we were disunified. We never became what we could have been. Well, over the next seven weeks, we're going to be having a conversation entitled Better Together. And we're going to see how as a church, as an organization, as friends, as family, as a nation, that we are better together. And we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians. This is how it begins. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, like I said, over the next seven weeks, we're going to be having this conversation surrounding this idea of being better together, focusing on unity and community, something that we all inherently know that we should want, right, that we need. It's not something that we learned during the isolation of COVID. It's not something that we learned about from Dr. Phil or Oprah, right? We just know this because it's built into being human. In fact, it's built into the very beginning of God's story for us. If we go back to the book of Genesis, what do we see? We see the Garden of Eden. We see Adam placed into this place of perfection, and he is in perfect unity with God. It says that God actually walked through the garden. There was no pain, there was no suffering. Everything was available to Adam, but yet there was something missing. There was something that he could sense, but he couldn't quite put his finger on it, but God could. It was Eve. And so God gave Adam Eve, and in that moment, God's goal of connection was fulfilled. There was perfect community, connection with God and connection with mankind or Eve at this point. Now, of course, we know this story wouldn't last because Satan came into the conversation. He came into the picture, and what is his goal? Well, his goal is the exact opposite of God. Where God's goal is connection and unity and community, well, Satan's goal is disconnection and disunity. And that's what happened. They had one rule, but they couldn't do it. When God confronted them, Adam blamed Satan, then he blamed God, and then he blamed Eve, and disunity happened. They were moved out of the garden, but God was not done. His goal would live on. And so as we look through the Bible, we see this theme. We run into things like the Ten Commandments, where the commandments are set up in two different ways, to connect us to God and to connect us to one another and to point us in a direction that will not make us disconnect from one another and disconnect from God. As we go into the temple, priest, and sacrifice, we see the same thing. When the people would violate some norm or, or have some relational breakdown between God or each other, they would go to the temple, they would sacrifice these animals, and they'd receive grace. And those relationships would be restored. They receive grace from God, and they'd learn to extend grace to one another. As we make our way into the Gospels, we see the good news of Jesus Christ. 
God came to man to be connected to us. He taught and did miracles and ultimately died on the cross for our sins. So once again, we could be connected with God and connected with man, which leads us to heaven, which is return to the garden, return to paradise, return to perfect unity and community, connection with God and connection with man. So as we look into this book that we call Ephesians, a, a, a letter written to this church in Ephesus, it should come as no surprise that these themes that we see all throughout God's story, God's goal, are evident in the book of Ephesians. So as we look at this section of Scripture together, there's a couple things I want to point out as we begin. There's a couple groups of people. First of all, we have Paul. Now, if you've been around church for a while, been in Sunday school, you kind of know the story of Paul. Paul was a Pharisee, and if you were here the last couple weeks, you already know that the Pharisees and Jesus, well, they didn't get along. The Pharisees had one simple goal when it came to Jesus. They wanted to destroy him. Now, by the time Paul is writing this letter, Jesus has already died on the cross, and the Pharisees thought they had succeeded in their mission, but something was happening that was really throwing Paul off. The message of Jesus didn't stop. In fact, the message of Jesus was just growing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so he had to do something. And he decided the best way to accomplish this goal was to snuff out the people who were sharing this message. And he went around and he persecuted the church and he would kill people off. But one day he was traveling down this road and Jesus shows up and speaks to him from heaven. Now this could become as quite a surprise to Paul who believed that Jesus was dead and gone. Instead, Christ speaks to him and lets Paul know that he's going the wrong way, not traveling, but his whole life direction is going the wrong way. Which for Paul, as you can imagine, what a shock. Because you thought you were the good guy in the story, but it turns out you're the bad guy in the story, and this changes his whole life. He becomes this amazing missionary. He starts planting churches all around the known world, and he plants a church in the city called Ephesus. Now, as unique as Paul is, this city is incredibly interesting. It was a very diverse city. And the reason it was diverse is because there was a lot of trade there. Right? There was a harbor there where boats could come in. It was the crossroads where all these major roads came. And so it was this, this perfect place for people to trade their wares. And it became this, this amazing uh, commerce area where people would, would make money and sell things and, and do all these things. This is what Ephesus was. Now, another thing that helped Ephesus, it was a free city. A place where no matter what religion you had or what race you were, we were all considered equal. Everyone was considered equal in Ephesus. And so it just maximized what the city was. Their goal was not to build up walls and keep people out. Their, their, their goal was to open up the doors so they could make more money and be more prosperous. This was Ephesus. This is what they were all about. And so Paul plants a church in the middle of this very diverse city. So as you can imagine... If you plant a church in a city like that, your church is going to reflect the city. And it became a very diverse church. In fact, we get more of an idea of this when Paul continues. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. So as Paul continues, 
And if you're familiar with maybe Judaism, maybe you were Jewish, maybe you have some Jewish friends, this might actually sound a little bit familiar. Because what Paul is doing here is he's sharing what, what we'd call a baraka, which is a Jewish prayer of blessing. Now, as he shares this, you might notice that there's something that's tucked in here that wouldn't be in a Jewish prayer, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. Because for a non-Messianic Jew, Jesus is not the Messiah, and he's definitely not God. But what Paul does here, he places him on the same footing as God. Now, as believers, this is what we believe. We believe that God the Father and God the Son are one. That Jesus was God in the flesh. And so when Paul says these words in this prayer to a group of Jewish people, you can see how offended they would be and how disunifying this statement might be in this prayer might be. But if we look even further, we see that Paul actually is making uh, more disconnection and more disunity because he goes on and he's talking about the chosen people. Now, you've probably heard this before, that the Jews are the chosen people. God has picked them with a special plan and a special purpose. But look what Paul says here. Paul says we are chosen if we are in Christ Jesus. In other words, for Paul, it wasn't about taking a 23andMe DNA test, sending off the spit spit or the nose swab and finding out how much percentage uh, of Jewish you are to find out if you're chosen. No, for Paul, it was very simple. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are chosen by God for a very special purpose. Now, as you can imagine, for the Jewish people who viewed it as a part of their, their lineage, this would be hard to digest. It seems so disunifying. Well, Paul continues. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now, Paul, when he continues, he's making an abrupt shift. He's said the Jewish prayer. He's probably offended many of his Jewish followers as they're trying to understand what Christians believe and what Christ followers uh, hold on to. But now he shifts to actually something that's not Jewish, something that's very Roman, this idea of adoption. You see, in Jewish law, there was no mention of adoption. Now, in the Old Testament, we see a couple of references to adoption, but there's no specific law. Adoption was a Roman thing. It was from the Roman law. And actually, it was incredibly beautiful. You see, in Roman law, if you were adopted, everything from the past was forgotten. In other words, if you grew up in a family where your mom and dad made a lot of bad choices, maybe it was because of addiction or, or something like that, and they amassed a whole pile of debt, which would have gotten transferred on to you, if you were adopted, everything from the past was forgotten. It was as if you were never a part of that family, and you were brought into the new family. Now, to add to that, by being brought into the new family, you'd be considered on the same level as all the biological kids. In other words, by law... When the inheritance went out, you got the same amount that even those who came directly from the mom and dad got. This is a beautiful picture of how God works, isn't it? God calls us into his family. Everything from our past is forgotten, and we receive the exact same inheritance as everyone else, because now we are only sons and and daughters 
of the king. Well, Paul continues. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. So Paul continues to teach and to preach this very diverse church. He's talked to the Jews, he's talked to the Romans, and apparently he feels like he's lost the attention of the Jewish people. So he goes back to something they can understand, the sacrificial system, the temple, where when they would offend God or they'd offend others, they would go and they'd sacrifice these animals, they would receive grace, the past would be forgotten, and they would move forward in a better direction. Now, of course, Paul doesn't point at an animal, he points at the perfect sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. Where once again, as followers of Christ, we hold on to Christ's promises, we believe in his sacrifice, and our past is forgotten, and we are grafted into a new family. So Paul closes with this statement. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what does Paul say to this church? What does he say about God's goal? God's goal is community, connection, unity. Just like in the garden, we see God walking with his people. Adam and Eve in, in perfect connection before sin. This goal that God wanted to recreate, as Paul says, the fullness of time or heaven. This is the place where once again, as followers of Christ, we'll be perfectly united with God and perfectly united with each other forever. So, while we wait for that perfect community and that perfect unity, what do we do? Well, we live out God's goal in our life to be unified around the things that really matter, right? Around Jesus Christ and his teaching and his word. We see this amplified and showcased in this church in Ephesus. Because what do we know about them already? At the very least, we know there's a whole bunch of Jewish people in there, and there's a whole bunch of Roman people in there. A whole number of people that have nothing in common. They don't look alike. They don't sound alike. They have different preferences in clothing, in food, in music. They had every reason to be divided. In fact, remember, in this time, the Romans were in charge, which means they had subjugated pretty much the whole known world. So, Jewish people and Roman people, just by their governmental structures, were enemies. This is the church that Paul was shepherding. But yet, despite all those differences, they were united around Jesus Christ, which is pretty amazing to us, especially as modern-day Americans, because we're very divided. Even when it comes to our churches, Right? We want our preferences, and we want our styles, and we want our things to be exactly how we want them. We do things like this. We walk into a church, maybe we're trying it out, or maybe we, we are members there already. We, we walk in, and, and we look at the pastor and what he's wearing. Depending on what he's wearing, we might walk out. Right? We might go find a new church or start a new church, because what he's wearing is maybe too fancy. We don't want to be that dressed up, or maybe it's not fancy enough. And we begin to disunify. 
Where we walk in or we look at a building and, and we look at the windows and maybe there's stained glass there and we love that or maybe there's not and we don't like that. And we get into the struggle. Do I need to find a, a different church, a better church, or start a new church? Or we walk in and we hear our favorite song but it's not played by the right instrument and so we begin to find the place that works better for us. Or we hear a sermon from a pastor and we think, you know what, he didn't explicitly say this person's name, but I'm pretty sure he voted for President Trump. Or I'm pretty sure he voted for President Biden. And we start thinking, maybe it's time for a new church, or maybe we need to start a new church. Now, as I've said those things, more than likely you probably thought one of those things, and, and maybe you feel like I'm referencing specifically you. I'm not. I, I'm just poking around to find if we have some tender spots in here, because I know I do. I know I fall into this trap because as modern Americans we divide over all sorts of things that aren't actually centered around Jesus Christ and his truth and I believe we have something to learn from this church in Ephesus that had a hundred better reasons to divide than we do yet they were unified and because they were unified this is what they found out they were better together. You see, I, I believe as a church, as a church in America, as a church here at, at New Life, that we are better together. And I don't want to be the church of the could have been or should have been. I want to be the church that Jesus Christ wants us to be. United around him, united around his mission, as we serve the world and bring his transformation together. Amen. At this time, I invite you to rise as you're able, and we'll sing our hymn of the day. this time we're going to join together as a family of faith and truly be united with churches throughout our nation throughout our world churches in the past and churches in the future by reciting these words of the apostles creed please join me at this time i believe in god the father almighty creator of heaven and earth i believe in jesus christ his only son our lord he was conceived by the power of the holy spirit and born of the virgin mary he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. 
I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated as we lift our prayers up to God. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, united as one in our prayers. And Lord, we continue to pray for the COVID-19 crisis as it affects our area, as it affects our state, our nation, and the world. Lord, we pray for all those who are sick, restore them. We pray for the medical professionals, Lord, give them wisdom and strength. For those who are going through different difficult financial, dis- financial moments, Lord, give them hope. For those who are, are battling mental health concerns, Lord, we also ask that people surround them to provide the hope that only you can offer. Lord, we also pray for our missionaries who are around the globe dealing with their own COVID-19 challenges. Lord, we pray that though they might be locked in place or, or whatever is going on, Lord, that their mission will continue and your mission will prevail. Lord, on this September 11th weekend, we also think of our, our military, Lord, as their service serve us around the world, Lord. Keep them safe. Keep our, our freedoms intact, that we can serve you and freely proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we also want to pray for those who are going through health concerns. We continue to pray for Dessa Caravan as she goes through rehab, Ernie Little as he battles cancer, Frida Last in her rehab, Barbara Miller-Sean in her infection, Jackie Healy in her cancer recovery, Noel Reed in his car accident, Bonnie Von Alstel and her back issues, Danae Jensen and her cancer, Jim Prescott Sr. and his infection, and also Marilyn Hart and her eyes. Lord, for all these individuals, put your healing hand upon them and restore them. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we also want to pray for those who have recently on, undergone surgery. We pray for Linda Taylor and Rick Curley, who have both undergone heart surgery, Lord. We pray that those surgeries are effective and the rehab goes well and they are fully restored. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we also want to stop and say thank you for the ways that you have shown up in our lives and have blessed us richly, from healing us, providing for us. And so, Lord, we we celebrate uh, with you this morning with the Schneiderbauer family, Joe and Shanna, uh, for the birth of Joelle Sherry. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for providing new life in our world. And so, Lord, we just pray for them uh, that they will raise this young precious gift that you have given them in a way that honors you every moment of every day. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.